When I was sponsored by Fila, I would put that headband on. When I tightened up that headband and knotted it, that was the moment that I took over subconsciously the game and I would not think. The only thing that I would think about is receiving ball because once I received that ball, then anything and everything that I could do could possibly happen, and it came very naturally. But I never, ever went and tried to make a drastic move at some stage of the ball game by all of a sudden going, oh, my gosh, that came to me. Well, let's serve him short, okay, because it just doesn't work like that. Or, for example, it's point game, and all I have to do is side out one more time. I know I can beat him by hitting that ball inside of the block. Well, right there and then, <laughs> it's going to happen. You're going to try to hit that ball inside the block, but then you're going to get roofed because you just showed it. You showed it on your body, your your chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. And no one like me. Yeah. 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 Congratulations. You made it. Welcome to the Crusader. It's been a long time coming, yo. Yeah. But I'm here now. So what you wanna do? How many dudes you really know can flow like this, like this, like this? Let's do it. How many dudes you know roll like this? How many dudes you know flow like this? Not many, infinity, not many, infinity. How many dudes you know got the skills to go and rock a show like this? Uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't know anybody. Welcome to the Offball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 beach volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and movement leader. There is a clear space that is growing within sport development in between how you show up on the field of play and then how you prepare. And that space, that transference space between preparation and performance is really where the off-ball athlete lies. How do you manage yourself when you don't have the ball or the implement? And today's guest is someone who truly has mastered that craft. Sometimes you have to look backwards and extract information from people who evolved a sport, who pushed it, who were truly responsible for growing that game. So for this episode, we have a very special guest. His name is Randy Stoklos, and he is one of the major influences in the sport of beach volleyball. He's a legend of the game. He's a major character in the, the long story that is our sport. Now, this is a close one for me because he introduced me to beach volleyball in the 90s. He was one of the characters that I really resonated with and wanted to be. And so I want to thank him for introducing me to the sport that has given me so much. And I hope that this episode connects you with his spirit in a way that inspires you. Randy is one of the winningest players on the planet. He truly helped evolve the game and push it in all kinds of different ways that you'll find out through this episode. We dive into his early relationship with the sport, his mentors, how he got into the game. He paints us these incredible pictures about the pinnacle of beach volleyball in the late 80s and the 90s, the grit it took to play long side-out games, up to four-hour games, which is so mind-blowing. 
Simply put, this is an unbelievable conversation with one of the best beach volleyball players to have ever played the game. But before the podcast, I'd love it if you went over to iTunes and left a review. This is a passion project of mine that I truly hope will make a difference, and anything that you can do to support that is greatly appreciated. So without further ado, please enjoy this deep and inspiring conversation with the one and only legend of the game, Randy Stoklos. Welcome to the Off Ball Podcast. Today's guest is Randy Stoklos. I am so excited to have him on the show today. He's a Beach Volleyball Hall of Fame inductee. He had a 21-year career. He played in 367 Opens. He won 123 tournaments and is the first player to earn $1 million playing professional beach volleyball. This guy is a champion. I'm so excited. Randy, welcome. Thank you so much, Martin. Uh, What a pleasure it is to join you on this podcast. And... uh, Let's go. <laughs> so I'm schoolboy giddy for a few different reasons, but one, this is your first podcast. So welcome to the to the world of podcasting. I, I can anticipate you being a very popular guest moving forward. So excited that we can break you into this world, man. Sounds fun. Let's go talk about some beach volleyball. Let's do it. And, you know, the start for me and what I wanted to open this up with, and we spoke about this in 2000, I think 11 in Grand Cayman. But when I was 10 years old, my parents saw an advertisement in a newspaper for two on two beach volleyball being played in an ice rink where they trucked in the sand and they had no idea what that was. And so they brought me and I got to see yourself likely Sinjin Smith. I think it was Mike Dodd. I don't know if Karch was there, but legends of the game in probably 92, 93, 94, somewhere in there. And I was exposed to beach volleyball for my first time. And I was one of the kids that came down and played in the sand after. And that was when I got the bug. That was it. That was the turning point for me. And I set my sights. I wrote in a journal in grade six that I wanted to play professional beach volleyball and then it was inducted in the Olympics in 96. So, you know, Randy, I just want to first and foremost, as, as we enter this podcast, the reason why I'm doing this is to connect with youth and, and do my best to inspire them. And you were one of the pivotal people in my life who you introduced me to the beach volleyball, man. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, Martin, what really comes to mind in that moment of my life was that, and it's kind of something that should be brought up, You know, when we first came up to Canada to play in that event, it was for a reason. Specifically, it was for a fundraising event to go and get a um, a, uh, x-ray machine because we had some friends that were going uh, through some problems up in Canada. And the waiting time was something like two or three years or, excuse me, months to go in and be able to get into just getting an x-ray on the, help me out, what, it, what it's the big tank. It's uh, an x-ray, MRI machine. What, MRI, what? thank okay. you very much. And so we basically tried to get together and try to make this fundraiser for this event. In the meantime, that person actually passed away because they oh, couldn't no. get an MRI. And so that was really the reason why we came to Canada and really tried to get behind uh, the event, and I think it was not only in a in an ice skating ring, but I thought it was something like the Calgary Stampede or some type of indoor facility. But it, and then Niels will say, yes, that was the first time that obviously we met, but indirectly met, <laughs> and um, it was obviously something that you know is dear to both of us. Totally, and you know what I can only imagine 
resonated with me was was the ethos of beach volleyball in that era the physicality the vibe you know it, it drew on me as a young human being and made such an impression so you know let's let's go back to you in in your early development stages and i always love getting a, a brief picture of of my guests when they were 12 13 14 like where were you at in that crucial development time randy well, at 14 years of age, it was actually, let me start with just saying that, you know, everybody that gets involved with the sport of volleyball is being presented by essentially an older person that has been involved with volleyball. It's just not something that you just jump into and say, hey, I want to be a part of it. Actually, on the contrary, if you actually go down to a beach and you want to jump into a game, Good luck, because that's just not going to happen. Usually the excuses are that there's a game already set up, or we don't know you, and ultimately they don't know your level and everything else. So getting back to the point was is that for me, I got introduced to the sport at a fairly young age um, by Bobby Barber, a neighbor of mine that lived a block away. He had a swimsuit store down in, in, in Santa Monica right at the pier. And I was pulled down, and he had a set of twins. As I am a twin, I have a twin sister. Her name's Rhonda. And we were hauled down to, on weekends, in the van. And it was essentially just, you know, kind of play around down at the beach, go into the arcades, fool around on, in Santa Monica, on the pier. And we had such a, such a great life. But ultimately, it was like it came about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and we had Joe Gold down there from Gold Gym, and we had all types <laughs> of characters. Will Chamberlain was down there. We had all types of, you know, the the, the better players, uh, Butch May. I can go on and on and on. But they would say big games, big games, everybody plays. And so all of a sudden that meant there was a six-man game, and you rotated in with like ten people on the side, and that's where I learned, started to learn how to play the game of beach volleyball. I was right next to a 90-year-old. I was right next to a 75-year-old. And we're just trying to keep the ball alive and keep it going. And then one thing led to another. All of a sudden, I got that opportunity to, to kind of branch off and say, okay, well, I know this game a little bit. I started playing two-man. But it, was, it wasn't until I was about 15 years of age where I really, really got involved with it. And my father came from Poland $20 in a suitcase after the war. He escaped Auschwitz, and he was a, a survivor, and he came to this country, you know, just trying to grab any kind of job that he could. And for me, I wasn't – it wasn't looked at like that was the most important thing for me to do, <laughs> go down I can to imagine. the beach. I can imagine. And you can you can imagine what my father was saying, you know, we don't want you to become a beach bum. We want you to do something with your life. So in the, in the respect that I almost had two separate fathers, Bobby Barber and then my, my father, Rudy Stoklos, that were just totally different. And I was blessed enough to have Bobby Barber give me the sensitive you know, aspect of just enjoying life and getting into a sport. And that's truly where it started for me. And I, and I, and I started outdoors. I didn't start indoors. Hmm. And so I, I learned the fundamentals, you know, and unfortunately or fortunately enough, there are no substitutions. There's no hiding out there. You got to figure it out and figure it out pretty quick or else you're not going to be on that court. And in those days, you'd sign up on a piece of paper, 
hopefully getting there early enough in the day to go and get on the court. And then obviously if you won, you stayed on. If you lost, it was going to be a long wait to get back on the court. So there was a premium in winning in trying to stay on that court at an early age. And I think maybe that was some of the development that I learned at a very young age. That's amazing. And so though, are you talking about the, the challenger courts? So essentially the, the culture at that time, there were the challenger courts. And so you'd show up and you didn't have a partner at that time. So you'd come alone and you just wound up developing that way. All of the courts were challenger courts. Oh it was God. essentially if you got there in a, in a timely way, they would basically look around and know exactly who's up next, who's <laughs> waiting, who's after that, and so on and so on and so on. So for me, it was just basically trying to hold the court and trying to stay on there. And, you know, ultimately, it throughout my whole career, that's basically how it was in practice. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, when you feel like, you know, you want to play and that opportunity is taken away from you, well, you work a little bit harder <laughs> on staying on the court. Uh, I, I love that because now there's – you know, let's just say beach volleyball is so much more reformed and there's national teams and and there's clubs and this and that, which I'm not saying is a bad model, but, you know, I never had access to to the King's Court as a way of just introducing myself to it. And I had to win to stay on it. Like, I, I love that concept. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, when you're 15, 16, 17, like, where was the beach volleyball sport? What was the culture like of the sport at that point? Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the probably the greatest era of beach volleyball. And a lot of people are going to maybe argue it that prior to me with the Ron Von Hagens, Ron Langs, Keith Erickson, um, uh, the list goes on that they had um, a unique thing going on. The Manhattan Open started in 1960, I think the oldest living tournament in Southern California. Uh, or in the United States is in Laguna Beach in 1959 that started and these were opens that essentially all the players you know got together and there was only a handful of them back in the day but for me I was blessed enough to be around not only the people that had played the game but I was lucky enough to be right kind of rubbing shoulders against the with these people you know, Will Chamberlain, a basketball player that's probably as well known as any athlete in the world, I was basically going down to the beach and rubbing shoulders and playing with him and had had a had an incredible uh, relationship with him just to kind of get those little innuendos of, you know, success, uh, what it takes, all the above. And and again, you know, it it was exciting in that you know, I didn't know really what I was getting into, but for the most part, it was, I can remember in Santa Monica, the first tournament, the first so-called world championship, 1976 State Beach. I played in the tournament with Bobby Barber, my guy who got me into the sport. He, what what was, was the age difference there? I was 15. Bobby was, I think, close to 50. Come on, that's so epic. Yeah, and Bobby was, I think, maybe 48, if I'm if I'm not uh, wrong there. And so we got out there, and the classic thing was that we were the first game of the day on the first court, 
And there was a very unique thing that was going on that they had the top eight seeded teams had bounty money on them. That meant if you beat them, you got $50. $50 <laughs> in 1976. I could buy homes back then with that type of money. It was an incredible moment because I was playing against the eight seeded team, uh, Sims and Shaw. I'll never forget it. And all of a sudden, we're beating Sims and Shaw, and it's something like 12-9, and the place is going crazy, and they can't believe this little kid is out there beating this team, and it's sponsored by Volleyball Magazine, and it's a, it's a big deal. It's the biggest deal. And then Niels will say, as I'll continue probably to say this a number of times in this podcast, that I started to think. And right at that one moment when I started to think and what, like I was going to cash in on the $50 that I was going to go and beat this team, that that's when the whole game turned around and all of a sudden they came back and beat us. <laughs> I ended up losing the second game in the loser's bracket. And I'll never forget Bobby Barber putting his arm around me and me walking out to the beach or to the water with him. And he said, what do you think? How was that? And I looked back at him and I just, I could, there was no words. All I knew is, is that this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, the stage, the presence, the uh, acceptance, um, the excitement uh, to play a sport, to be in front of all those people just was right up my alley. And so I get kind of a little bit, you can hear it in my yeah. voice with oh, Bobby because Bobby passed away. A couple of years ago, it was a it was a grand time for me, and, and it was the the stepping stone that took me uh, to different places in in the world of volleyball. Yeah, incredible, and I, I appreciate you being so open with that. I mean, having someone who introduces you to a sport and and really gives of themselves in a way that is passed on through you is so special, and um, it's incredible that you wound up playing the way you did for so long and, and honoring him. And as, as you played that first tournament with him and he was an important piece in your life as, you know, call it a coach or a mentor, were there athletes at that moment that then you started looking up to and going, wow, I, that, that's what I want to be like. I want, I want to go after those guys. Was that the conversation you started having with yourself? You know, Martin, that question has been given to me a lot, you know, and I would have to say that there was no one person that I ever looked up to. I um, I just isn't I wasn't made that way you know if there was anything I'd be playing basketball and I was Dr J and uh, you know I tried to do things like him Dr J you know Julius Irving um, but outside of you know that and looking at if there was anybody anybody that was dangling the carrot in front of my nose uh, and I tried to uh, emulate myself and try to be like and try to stay up with was a guy that was born one month prior to me, mm. and that was Karch Kirai. Right. That guy, uh, when I first met him on the junior national team at 17 years of age, um, needless to say, he had the drive, he had the, the competitive uh, nature that uh, I think that we all kind of want to aspire to. But needless to say, the only way that I was going to compete with him was basically on the floor. And that was in drills and in in training and trying to keep up with the horse. And ultimately, I think that that's what really 
gave me the opportunities to uh, excel. You know, the interesting thing for me as a, a young volleyball player was is that I didn't have I was a, a well-rounded volleyball player, so I could block, I could pass, I could dig, I could set. I was a setter in high school. Um, I middle blocked when I got to the front row to help my team out. We won two city championships. Um, I went on to Santa Monica City College. I set there and I kind of did the same thing, hopped up in the front court and I just didn't stay out on the pins. I, did. I said, you're, you move over and I'm going to take over here and we're going to block some balls. And so things kind of led to uh, another state championship with that. And then I went on to UCLA. And this all happened, you know, when I was basically getting out of high school at 17, at a pretty young age, Santa Monica City College at 18. All of a sudden, I'm playing two years of on the junior national team where we go over to Hilo, Hawaii to play the Pac Rim tournament. And we basically trounce everybody and anybody. But the team that we had over there, Steve Sammons, Pat Powers, um, Karch Karai, uh, the list goes on. I can't even recall right now, but for the most part, it was, uh, we had an all-star team and Mm -hmm. it was, I didn't even get all that much playing time because, and then ultimately that was to my demise coming on the national team. It was that the aspect of me going and being good at all different positions then at that era, it was now being focused on being a middle blocker, being a setter, being a libero, and all those separate positions. So that kind of hurt me in in the in the bigger picture. Uh, not to say that I could have compete uh, compete with all of those other people, but there were just there was a lot of good volleyball players coming up, and I came up in a really great era. So did you make a conscious decision to then go into the sand full time? Like, was that a departure from indoor volleyball or did you play the two for a while and then make a choice? Like what, what was then the thought process to go play beach volleyball and, and move into that space full time? Well, I think there was a couple things that happened to me, you know, I, and a lot of people just look at me as a beach volleyball player. Like I was growing up on the beach, that there was nothing else that I saw. The sand was between my toes, but the (laughs) truth was, is that, yeah, I started playing out on the beach at an early age, but I then obviously got into a junior uh, high school and that's where we started playing out on the blacktops every chance that we could before school, nutrition, lunchtime, after school, come back, play in the gym that night. And that's really where I got the fever to, to, to play. And it was two-man, four-man, six-man, whatever it might have been. And then, needless to say, during the summer months, I was dragged down to the beach to go and even play. And that's where I kind of honed my skills. But after winning two city championships um, yeah, for Palisades High School, I went on to Santa Monica City College and won one there. A state championship and uh, I had a great match and it's something I probably can kind of share. We're losing to Steve Timmons Orange Coast College and we were the number one seed and we're playing them in the quarterfinals of the state championship and we're losing to them. We've lost the first game. We've lost the second game. We're down side out scoring 14 to 6. <laughs> And my coach, Mike Norman, and I know this is going to be one of your questions. Mike Norman was a player that played at UCLA, that coached on the national team or, uh, you know, was a part of the national team. And he was a coach at Santa Monica City College with me. 
he basically calls a timeout and he looks at us and he says, do you guys realize if you guys lose this game, a lot of people are going to be really unhappy? And then he looked at me and he looked at the setter and he said, set Randy every ball. <laughs> and Steve Timmons, all of a sudden, they ran out of substitutions. And Steve Timmons obviously doesn't come in back in the game. And they've got this little guy in the front row that, you know, that they, they've ran out of subs. And Steve Timmons doesn't get back in the game. We come back. Well, no, and he, it gets even more exciting. Then they have a swing for game. And, they, and I'm playing back right. And they hit the ball off the block. And it goes caroming off the block into the stands or going toward the stands. And I recognize it. And I see it early. And they're celebrating like they have just beat us. I go diving after the ball, maybe the greatest play I've ever made in my life. I dive after the ball. I pop this ball up. Setter bumps the ball outside to this lefty, and we side out. And Niels to say, we came back, 116-14, one in five. And that was a very, very memorable moment for myself in regards to indoor volleyball and playing in basically my first year of college, junior college volleyball. And then, needless to say, I went on to play at UCLA the following year. We were the runner-ups to USC uh, in a heartbreaking loss because we had only lost uh, two times. And that was to Pat Powers and Steve Timmons and Tim Hovland and Dusty Dvorak and all the guys that basically played on the national team, and they had a, quite a team. We beat them in regular season a couple times, but those were the only two losses. We lost to them in Ball State in a tournament, and then we lost to them in the NCAAs in the finals. And on a little footnote to that, I drank the water at Ball State, and it was polluted, and I got sick that night the prior to the finals, and it just I've had a couple of things happen to me in my life with my sport yeah. that uh, for some reason or something else that has kind of, uh, you know, just put me in my place or try to, you know, somebody upstairs is kind of going, OK, it is not your turn yet. But um, <laughs> I've had my, a couple of turns. So to make a long story short, in my college career, um, I lost I played two uh, years of, of college volleyball. I lost two matches. And um, I went on to play uh, a couple months of professional volleyball in Italy with a team called Parma. And I went on to win a, uh, an inter or a world championship, a club world championship in, in Europe with that team. No way. And then that was pretty much the end of my indoor volleyball career. And it was basically up to that point. I had played a number of tournaments uh, outdoors to during the summer months, I you know placed. I think my first time I placed in an open was at 17. I won a double A when I was 17, so I got my triple A, which was a big big deal. And then ultimately, um, I won my first open at 20 years of age, the Manhattan Open. Amazing. So, pulling a couple of questions together that I asked beforehand. You know, who, who did you look up to? And, and this is going to show up why I asked that question. Two was, you know, 
when did you start and, and make your transition into the sand full time? And three, and, and this is what I was getting at, is I want to understand the development of Randy Stoklos in the 17, 18, 19, 20, like you as a human being, because what you presented as on the court, six foot four, 220 pounds, you were a beast, you were fiery. I mean, I look back at, at the, the footage of it and, and how you played is how I wanted to play. Where did you learn that from? Or did you, it was, did that just come naturally? And let's, let's talk about you as a player, as you started to evolve in your late teens and early twenties. Well, um, to be honest with you, you know, that road wasn't exactly like how you call it. You know, when I was in high school, when I first was accepted on, on the high school team, um, it was only because I could set people in warmups. I, I, I went like five foot seven, probably 180 pounds. Um, I hadn't developed whatsoever. And literally, I was kept on the team so I could set people in warmups. And that's the, the starting of it. And then it kind of bothered me in such a way that I went, you know what, I'm just not going to sit on the bench in my first year. So I went out and just played as much as I could that following year. And that's really what I've said to pretty much everybody and anybody that's at that age, especially during that summer that they have off in high school to just get out and play as much as you can and develop your skills. Because, you know, again, there's nobody going to tell you, okay, substitution, you're out of there. You can go out and play on the beach and just, and work on it and work on it, work on and work on it as I did. Um, but there was also too a lot of a lot of great players that I was able to witness uh, growing up from all different types of beaches, and I would just sit there and I would just watch it. I would try to figure out exactly, you know, what their secrets are, their habits were. Um, you know, looking back at seeing Ron von Hagen, and you know, you put me up on this pedestal. I'll put Ron von Hagen up there. He was just an incredible. They called him Ron von Yogurt. He did <laughs> physically. He was he was just absolutely um, a specimen. And I'll never forget Ron even coming up to me at an early age, and he goes, "Don't you want to become strong, Randy? Don't you want to become strong?" And so all of a sudden, here is one of these guys that are just a legend in the sport, and he's asking me this question. And so my natural reply is. Yeah, I want to become strong. Yeah, and so ultimately that was kind of the 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 match that lit the fire for myself in trying to figure out how I was going to become an athlete and how I was just uh, ultimately thinking about getting just bigger, stronger, faster, quicker, and trying to do things different than everybody else. Yeah, I love that. And it showed. I mean, there you had a fire. Now, I want to we'll, – we'll allude to the the warrior nature of, of side-out beach volleyball, but I look I look back, and it was warriors. You guys were battling. You were physical. There, points that happen in Rally Point now are, are awarded, and, and you hit 21, and that's the end of that set. Whereas in side-out point, you had to earn – every single point and you had to defend it on the side out and games could last a lot longer. Um, this is a bit earlier than I wanted to go, but like, let's dive into the culture of side out play. You know, can you talk about the culture of side out play and, you know, beach volleyball at that point in time, how that impacted you as an athlete? 
Well, I'm going to tell you a couple stories, but ultimately the side out scoring was uh, in such a way that the worst feeling in the world when you didn't know when the game would end, okay? Because that team could side out forever. And as Ron Von Hagen said, if you side out, you'll never give up a point. So ultimately, that's the basis of the thinking of just literally receiving serve, getting the best set that you can, and literally, you know, trying to, to, to go after it over and over and over again. And again, we were on a nine meter by nine meter square, not the eight by eight now. Um, and it gave two things. It gave the advantage of a smaller player uh, to 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 kind of compete against a bigger player. But also, too, it gave you the opportunity to 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 side out, to to literally score points. And, you know, I can look back in my career and think about all of the different matches that we play. And I have to say, sometimes I, I, I might be so brash to say that I probably hit more balls or jump more than any human being ever in the in the history of the sport, because obviously the games went on for, you know, three or four times as long as the average match goes on now. I had at one time uh, in the mid 80s when I was about 26, 27 years of age, we played a world championship down in Rio de Janeiro. It was one of the first ones. And I had a match that went four and a half hours. We started at 12 o'clock noon. They pointed us right in the sun. We were playing against a Brazilian team that was just, you know, they, they, they had some open rules with open hand dink. And this one guy was just a master at dinking the ball around and tipping it around. And this game went on for four and a half hours. And ultimately... I lost body control. Now, Martin, you're not going to really understand this because it just doesn't. It's not. It just doesn't happen in the game of volleyball now. But if you anybody had seen any of the endurance running races from Hawaii, where the girl's running sideways and she loses her body control and she's basically cramping and she's walking sideways, well, I that exactly the same thing happened to me. It was at 15-14, we're winning in the last game, and all of a sudden the other team calls a timeout, and I come stumbling off the court, and I sit down, and I drink some, I put some water to my lips, and I could swear to you that I saw the water come sieving out of my stomach. And I know that's impossible, but it sure felt like that. And then ultimately, I said to Sinjin, I started to to lose body function in a way that I can say this on this podcast that I, I started peeing in my pants uncontrollably and I lost body control in that way. And I knew I lost body control because it's something that's never happened to me. My heart was racing. My eyeballs were bugged out. Uh, it was, I'm going to dare to say 135 degrees on the sand. And we had played for four hours and I say to Sinjin, get me the hell out of here. I don't care who, who wins or loses this game. Get me out of here. And Sinjin pauses for a second, and he comes back with this line, which was just a classic. He goes, Randy, side out one more time. That guy feels the same way you do. And I kind of look back at him, startled, 
And I went, okay, I kind of believed it. And as I'm hearing the whistle blow and they're trying to get us out, you know, get us out, get us out, hurry us up, as they all did. You know, the Brazilians, they were, um, you know, they're very competitive. And you'll say not only their athletes, but all the, the surroundings. And sure enough, I dragged myself out there. We serve the next ball and Sinjin serving. Sinjin serves Bernard Rosman. Bernard goes up and he literally jumps up and he goes into a body, total body cramp. <laughs> he, can ba- he barely pokes the ball over the net. I'm looking at a guy on the ground. We're playing against one guy then. All we need is this last point. I bump the ball. I don't even go in my hands. I just bump the ball up anywhere. Sinjin then shoots it for game. And that was really a moment uh, that I'll never forget in regards to the side-out scoring because um, not only did I survive it, and I, and I wanted out. I totally wanted out. I just, there was, there was just the, it was the worst feeling that I could, could possibly feel. And, again, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't fun at that point when I lost my body control. And um, Neil say that was our first world championship, and then we went on to win four more down in Rio and then became the kings of Rio uh, from a name that was given to Anton Senna, the race car driver, the, yep. the, the Brazilian race car driver. So, you know, that was a a huge moment for us. It was a huge moment for myself. It was a huge moment for the sport um, because it it was tied into a lot of things that went on. And we'll talk about that moving on. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to peel it back just a little bit in terms of the the strategy and the mentality. And and when you came on the court to play a side out game, what were what were your primary objectives? What was how are you attacking and how are you framing your your play because that's kind of an, an era lost on me like strategically i wouldn't know how to get the best out of it i'm sure we could shoot the shit and, and get it but i just want to hear from the man himself randy like how did you get on the court because you were so aggressive you were so athletic like where did you look to score points and to flex well i think that the for the most part uh for myself you know, in the, in the games in the early 80s, it, all of a sudden the jump serve started to be developed. And I saw it in the indoor game uh, in 1984 with the Brazilians playing in Los Angeles. And uh, needless to say, that was something that was kind of right up my alley. And I just said, okay, well, we're going to start this all off with a, with a serve. And it's just not going to be the lollipop. It's not going to be a short serve. It's not going to be a deep serve. It's not going to be a sky ball. It's going to be a jump serve, and we're going to put some pace on it, and we're going to put you on defense right off the bat. As it is so much to, in today's game, yeah. is for me, it's the starting of how you play the game of chess in regards to volleyball. And that is by serving the ball tough, not serving at a player, but serving in locations that can create those points. And especially now because of the rally scoring now, it's so, so important. There's 21 side outs, you, and it's much more calculated than the day that I played. And in regards to me you know, playing that side out game, it was, um, like I said to you in the very beginning, the worst feeling was when you didn't know when the game would end. Mm. And I can say to myself, and I, re- I remember looking to the sky going, God, I'm a good guy. Just give me one more point because I need to get out of here. 
<laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, well, let's let's go back. And you you beat me to the punch here with with Sinjin, but I want to say in 1982, you guys won Santa Barbara together. Correct? Was that your first yeah. win together? Yeah. Bring me back to that tournament to to the first win of your guys's career as a team, and and then bring me into the partnership because you guys had something special. You guys are will live forever in the archives of, of volleyball is just such an incredibly special team. So take me into, you know, the honeymoon phase of, of your guys' team. Well, I'm going to take you a couple years even prior to that because Neil say I played with a lot of, you know, good players that were pretty much winning tournaments that were up, you know, highly ranked. And that was kind of the just how it is in your country and everybody else's country. You kind of have a ladder system where you step up that ladder and you, okay, we'll play with that. We had success. Okay, can we get better? Okay, find somebody else, have success. I played with Steve Obradovich. Should have won a Manhattan Open with him. Took third with him. Played with Chris Marlowe, the voice of the AVP. Literally should have won a Manhattan Open with him. Ended up playing with Jim Mingus at, at the age of 20 and ended up winning the Manhattan Open with Jimmy. Um, but then it was still, look, for me, it was trying to find the ingredient. Karch and, and uh, Sinjin played together at those years, and they were a formidable team that were winning quite often. And needless to say, when Karch kind of dove into the indoor program, it gave myself the opportunity to, to play with with Sinjin. And I don't really recall who asked who. I, you know, both of our egos were probably so big that I think we just <laughs> came together and get all right, all right, let's go. And that was basically it. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, Martin, looking back in 1982, and that was our first event that we played together um, and that we won in Santa Barbara, I was just asking an old-time photographer up in Santa Barbara for a picture of Sinjin and I as I have my arm draped around with him on a black-and-white photo that hung in the boathouse up in Santa Barbara that's been removed some years ago, but somebody's got it floating around, and I, I really want to get a copy of that because it's special to me. But it was... Um, it was a moment that, you know, I just took like any other uh, player or any other athlete. I, I just tried to be successful with whoever I was competing with and whoever I was playing with. So it, 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 there wasn't anything special to mm-hmm. it except for that it was the beginning stage of an 11-year career that Sinjin and I became um, not only uh, household names, but uh, the leaders in the sport that uh, created a lot of different things to happen in our sport. Yeah. Um, you know, Sinjin was a, a great player. I think the one thing that he had mentally was this kind of this underlying vibe that um, he could get underneath your skin. And I knew that playing against him. So when the opportunity came, to obviously play with Sinjin, I was like, well, either I'm going to play against that madman or I'm going to play with him. And so I got <laughs> to pl- did the opportunity to play with him, which made uh, everything a whole lot easier because he was on my side. And uh, Neil to say, um, you know, those were the, the good old fun years and just the beginning stages. I don't even know how much money there was, a little, little or nothing. 
Um, you know, the handshake and the trophy and ultimately being uh, a winner at that beach was most important. Yeah. Well, what were some ingredients that made your team successful? Because an 11 year career with, with one teammate is special. Like that is incredible. And I'm sure you guys had your highs and you had your lows and you had your tests and, you know, that's for you guys to, to either keep keep to yourselves and to your graves or, or share a little bit here. But talk to me a little bit about that dynamic because 11 years, man, that's that's incredible. What what made your team special and kept you guys together? Well, Martin, it wasn't only until I finished my career with Sinjin and we played a little couple exhibition games that uh, I really realized the magic that we had. And, and I'll never forget that exhibition game. The first time we had come together, probably in five years after we were done playing with each other, um, there was a, you know, I blocked the ball at the net, Sinjin then dug a ball, then he went over the block and got that shot. But And then all of a sudden dug another ball and then dug another ball and we score and the place goes crazy. And it was actually at that one moment that I realized like, wow, man, you're like, kind of like kind of this is kind of groovy this is kind of like you know we really you know had something really you know that was very special um and ultimately i think it all comes down to the ball control sinjin passed the ball really well i set the ball really well it gave him an opportunity to move that ball around because he wasn't all that big of a player at six three and a half um but very smart and knew how to go and beat his opponent and um, it was something that, you know, him being three years or four years older than me, I learned a lot from him uh, just in that respect. But it was, um, you know, ultimately, you know, for, for looking back at it, and I'm sorry to kind of that I have to kind of hesitate and think back. That's, in those that's okay. Moments, but it, it truly is um, about how we played together as a team. And... And ultimately, when we had all the success that we had around the world in Southern California, we would beat a lot of teams just because of our names. It, you'd get right down to the very end of these matches, and uh, whether they were beating us or not, they would realize that they would be in a close match, and all of a sudden they would start to think. Well, right when you start to think is at the moment that you give up the game because for some reason – you know, you can you can kind of go like, all right, I'm going to win, I'm going to win, I'm going to win. And right when you think that, you know, the game all of a sudden turns. And that was worth two or three points a game, at least, for Sinjar and I. And that's why we were able to kind of win as much as we were. A um, lot of great teams. Tim Hovland, Mike Dodd, um, Scott Akatubi, Brent Frohoff, uh, Karch Kurai, and whoever. Um there was a lot of great teams that we played against, obviously lesser probably than it is today worldwide. Um, but I would still beg to differ that uh, our style of, of game and the way we, we, we played and our competitive nature could, can, could compete with anybody, especially in the side out scoring on a bigger court. You know, sometimes I jump on that bigger court and I go, ooh, 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 that, that's a lot of room to cover. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it gets a little scary where you're just like, wow, I can't move like that like I once did, much <laughs> less an eight by eight meter. 
I'm 57 at, at the time, and I'm playing less and less every uh, every day. And I literally, I shouldn't even say every day. I play now probably uh, once a year, you know, on specialty events and and all that. I'm I kind of get my exercises in different in different ways, and you know, I'm uh, I've learned that in the competitive uh, person that I am, that I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. So <laughs> I try to stay away from it because if I don't win, well, you're supposed to win. Yeah. Well, you know what? Beautiful sidebar because when you were working with the Grand Cayman team and and. I, I don't know if it was 2011 or 2012, but I think I was down there with Josh Binstock and we did some practices together and man, you were in the sand ripping it up and you were right there just as, just as if not more intense than us. And it was just, it lit me up, man, because your fire was still so burning so strong. It was, it was so great. You know, Martin, I, I remember that and it was with came shock. It was okay. came, it was came. That's right. Yeah, and I had I just did a um, I did the AVP events in Huntington Beach for the FIVB on the online feed, and Kim and I uh, were talking about that, and I kind of funny I I should play it back because. I said to him, I said, you know, you guys weren't very good back then. <laughs> and I really, you know, admired that you guys came down there to play. And and I was glad to be a part of your life and everything else. And came chimes in and says, basically, he that he was just one of his first years playing. But that moment and I know what I do. I do. I truly do know what I do. And I know how to you know help a younger player i know how to uh, instill the the positive force that you need to be as a volleyball player and i think that that's one of the kind of the things that i have that might be a little bit different than most people that i was able to share um a lot of my positive uh, attributes to playing the game and to getting you guys to do what i wanted to do and by me even saying that, I, I think about, you know, this opportunity that came to us with obviously getting the sport in the Olympic Games. Mm. And ultimately, I was playing in Rio de Janeiro and all the diplomats were down there. And uh, Ruben Acosta, the president of the FIBB, was sitting in the stands along with Antonio Samaranch. And ultimately, I came to them and literally got on my knees and I said, please, can we get beach volleyball in the Olympic Games? Because I truly wanted to have not only people, you know, play the game, but I wanted to have the people play it around the world like I did, because once you play the game of beach volleyball, you'll you'll know that it's something special and so much different because you're 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 sans or your toes are in the sand and that you're absorbing the sun and that you're one with nature and there's just nothing like it. There's just absolutely nothing like it. Surfing is there, but you're in the body of water. You're not really connected to the earth. And it, it truly uh, is a special sport in that way. And then ultimately seeing the Olympic Games, accept it and then go um, to be the number one sold out sport every single time. Pretty, pretty fantastic for myself because, you know, I was kind of had the um, I was in the driver's seat at that time to make those decisions and try to, you know, push the sport into that 
atmosphere to give it the, the uh, legitimacy of, of, of it being a grand sport. I think some things have been taken away from the, 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 the difference of back then. Uh, I think a lot of athletes in a lot of different sports really, really appreciated what we did because it was an endurance sport. Mm-hmm. And it, who, who wants to stay out there? Who wants to be out there? Who wants to be, you know, playing four and a half hour matches? I mean, you know, that's that, that was a comparison that that I had over and over and over again. And I don't think that the sport gets that anymore, even though that I tell anybody and everybody that, hey, you know, you go and walk down to the ocean and tell me how it is. Uh, it's pretty difficult to just do that, much less play for 15 minutes, half an hour, or 45 minutes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back to you know when when you and Sinjin were playing together, and this isn't necessarily about the team, but I want to talk about the culture of the sport because you know we referenced it before we started going live that you know some people just see beach volleyball now and think that it was always an Olympic sport or this is what it is and this is the presentation, but the origin of beach volleyball is totally different. And when I look back to the tournaments where people were crowding around the lines and there's people hanging off the piers and the vibe was different. Like, can you paint a picture for me, for everyone culturally, what was beach volleyball when it was in that peak era of just vibe and fans and bravado and sponsorships and bright colors and short shorts. Like that was wicked. That was the time to be playing, man. And you you were, you were the King Kong of it. So bring me back to that place. Well, first of all, there was nothing like it. Um, It was a, a stage that was so different than any sport in the world um, and like you say, with the spectators' toes right up to the edge of the lines with no banners, uh, that you had to literally walk, you know, over chairs and umbrellas and through people just to get to the court um, <laughs> was quite, 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 quite a, a scene. And needless to say, you know, when you're kind of brushing up against all of those people as you're walking, well, they're, they're looking at you as like you're just a god that has passed by and was able to just touch them for a second. That's the way it kind of felt, you know, and the excitement once you stepped on the court and it was, again, kind of the gladiator feel to it that here I was in the middle of the arena. Okay, it's time to do or die, as you can, you can imagine. And um, ultimately... You know, the sport started in the 1920s in Hawaii and in Santa Monica. Duke Guanamoco, the the famous uh, Olympian uh, swimmer uh, athlete, he was playing the game at in, on the on the shores of the Hawaiian Islands, and then Neil say brought it over to uh, the to California. I remember also two meeting. You know, some of the players from back there, uh, literally a guy that played there, Paul Johnson. I was able to meet Paul Johnson. And you don't know who Paul Johnson is, but nobody knows who, who's Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson was a player that played the game in the 20s and the 30s. And needless to say, he was elderly when I met him. He's no longer with us. But, I, you know, that's the kind of life that I have had. 
I've gotten that opportunity to not only meet these famous people, be but be around them because it was part of the culture. You know, uh, getting back into thinking about all of those tournaments at Laguna Beach, at Manhattan, with all the people, I, I I just could tell you story over story over story about you know what the feeling was all about. And uh, uh, one of them specifically was the Manhattan Open. I had lost a couple of the opens to Tim Holden and Mike Dodd in the early '80s. I'm getting down to one of the tournaments, and again, this could have been—I could have won it, I could have lost it—but it's a Sunday morning, and people are already there. And a lot of the beaches, they would bury kegs of of beer in there. They would bring uh, sofas out on the side, and those were actually happening in Laguna Beach more than Manhattan. But the Manhattan story that I'm about to tell you is—is is that it was like no other. I remember getting walking down Manhattan Beach Boulevard and getting down to the parking lot, and then there's a staircase that goes down to the beach. And the place is absolutely packed. There's 10, 15,000 people just on just sitting on the beaches and just sitting there and just waiting. And I step onto that first rain of stairs, and I walk down, and all of a sudden, everybody stops. <laughs> and they look at me, and everybody turns around at me. And here I felt like I was at the OK Corral. And here my boots are chiming with my little clings on the back. And I'm walking down there going, ching, ching. And I've got my, I've got my six shooters on each side. And I'm about to go and spin them around. And, and I'm waiting for anybody to go and say anything. Like, here I am. And it was like, oh, here he comes. Here he comes. I'll tell you, Martin, there is no better feeling in the world but to be in that position with a big old target on your back. And whether you're winning or losing, it being an athlete that you have to perform and know that you have to perform, there is just no other feeling. I, I can imagine what a LeBron James is feeling right about now mm. about how he is and how he's carried himself. But that pretty much goes with uh, the story of any great athlete. Um, you know, if it's a challenge and you're a good athlete, you're going to rise to that moment and you're going to go and take that challenge and you're going to go and just say, you know what, I'm, whether I lose, win or lose, I know I'll be living tomorrow. So there's this, there'll be nothing wrong with it except for go out and fight. And that's what I did for most of my career. And I think, Martin, when you look at my career and you look at myself as a volleyball player, I think I was effective in a lot of ways to persuade people to believe not only in the sport, but, but to believe in me. Um, when all of a sudden you see a person that is as engaged as I was, as involved as I was, as, um, you know, strong and, and all the other things that go along with being a good athlete. Um, I think people really kind of it opened their eyes a lot to like say, hey, wow, these guys really take this thing, you know, professionally. And 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 there's a lot on the line. And it opened. I I know I opened a lot of people's eyes. It's just in the way I was. I kind of I I wore my heart on my sleeve and I acted that way. And ultimately, um, I wouldn't change a thing of how I was because, uh, you know, it was all about winning and, and whatever it took, I did. Well, you inspired multiple generations. So tip of the hat to you, my friend, uh, on that. But you also, 
you had this autonomy, you had this vibe about you that inspired and, and I felt it in Grand Cayman when I first met you. I couldn't even imagine being there live watching you and your crew playing at that moment. But like, talk, let's talk style because you had the big shades. You had the big bandana. I know there was a relationship with Fila, which I'd love to hear a story about sponsorship because at that point in time, like sponsorship was a real thing. There was, there was money to be made there. You were repping the bright short shorts, which was your, you know, signature. You, you were loud both in spirit and, and visually you were right there. Like, you know, was there a persona that you were going with there or was that just natural, man? You just went with it. I'd have to say it was all natural. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, even up to yesterday, you know, what is the difference between, you know, what was happening back then and happening now? And all I can say is, is that, um, you know, that we had a bit of what's called star quality. And I can't put a, a finger on exactly what we did and how we carried each, uh, carried each other or how it was for us as individuals, but we just basically had this kind of kind of star quality that people really wanted to be a part of and really wanted to see. And then ultimately, um, TV saw that. And Neil say that's when all of a sudden the exposure of the sport became big time. And we were on TV every weekend and during the week, um, hot summer nights for ESPN and uh, on Channel 4 NBC live broadcast uh, where all the, the rest of the United States is watching it. And then abroad where the, the, the tapes would go, um, they knew and they saw and, and it was lucky enough that we were in a lot of the finals. It wasn't like we were all of a sudden not showing up and taking a fifth and not getting to that moment. But even even when we didn't show, there was a lot of great teams, a lot of great teams. They, they, were, they were following our footsteps, and they obviously they saw exactly what we were doing as a team and how successful we're, we were. Um, but needless to say, that all just tumbled into the sponsorship and then the dollars. Remember, when we first started playing, it was a handshake and a trophy. Um, I remember winning my first tournament with Jim Mingus, and we won $5,000. Um, I was still kind of in amateur ranks, and I still wanted to keep that because I was going on to UCLA and playing at UCLA. And But Jimmy Mingus accepted the money for me, and I'll never forget going to the Bank of America down in Manhattan Beach. We pull up to the teller, and the teller looks at the check, and it's a check from the city of Manhattan Beach for $5,000. And she looks at both of us and she goes, well, this is a lot of money. What do you do for the city? Jimmy kind of looks over his shoulder at me and he looks back at the lady and she goes, we dig ditches. <laughs> and it was the funniest thing because all I was, this, I was 20 years old. I was just giggling. I was just like, going, oh, my gosh, give me the $2,500. I remember then Jimmy coming out to the parking lot and then whipping out the 25 of those babies. And I was like, that was the most money I've ever had in my life, you know, and thinking about like a 20 year old having $2,500. He just won $2,500. Neil sales on top of the world. And I really, really um, thank Jimmy for that opportunity. We had played a tournament the week before that we took seventh. In, at the Laguna Open, and we didn't play very well together, but we decided to stay together and give it another try. And sure enough, we beat uh, Andy Fishburne and, and uh, Dane Selznick in the finals of that first tournament. And 
refresh my memory what we were really it, getting at. Yeah, at, it was it was it was it was the peak of sponsorship and, and bravado and color and, you know, what you call star power, which I love and yeah. I agree with. I feel that, yeah. you know, it's <clears throat> the sport is still incredible. So please don't get me wrong. But, you know, there there are times where I think we've lost some of that flavor that was beach volleyball in the 80s and 90s. And, and so I'll maybe bait the hook a little bit more. Talk to me about the relationship that you had with Fila because, you know, you were representing a brand and, and there was some sponsorship game there. Like there was a business behind the business of sport at that time. There was a couple things, Martin. Uh, for myself, uh, it all started basically kind of 1984 where uh, Side Out was being developed. And Steve Asher came to Sinjin and myself and wanted to sponsor us as a team. And I literally was offered half as much as is in Sinjin. And Sinjin was offered $10,000 for the year, and I was offered $5,000. And I said, basically, I learned that he had gotten that type of money. And I said, well, thanks, but no thanks. And it was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because I not only then went with a company called uh, Offshore Sports, uh, where and offshore was uh, a beach clothing manufacturer in Southern California, and I remember being sponsored by them. But it was back in the day where you really had to work at it, and you had to literally. The way you were getting paid is is that I needed to cut out articles, pictures of myself, present them to the company. I'd get paid fifty dollars, whatever here, fifty dollars there, just to go. Okay, now you're. Pu- you're doing the publicity for our company. Okay, we're going to pay you. But it was basically at that time when I went back into the back of the room and I looked all of a sudden at all of these new bolts of color. And it was this whole color of these neon colors. And I, I saw yellow. I saw pink. I saw all of the bright colors. And I said, listen, I want you to make me up all these colored shorts because – I want to be the, the, the brightest. I want to be the loudest because I know cameras coming to me. And that was the most important thing that I could possibly do. And so ultimately, it not only started a kind of a trend, but the neons, you know, aspect of all neons, I can say literally started with me in that back room pulling out those bolts and going, you know what, I will, I will, I will, I'll wear it, I'll wear it. And that's kind of where all of a sudden a lot of um, exposure happened for me. And then the sport got uh, actually that uh, that exposure. But it was, wasn't up until all of a sudden – Oh, I'd say 1988, 1989 that Fila had approached me. I had now gotten an agent and he was representing and he says, hey, listen, I got a deal coming for you. And the deal turned out to be the biggest deal ever in the history of volleyball. And I would beg to say that it's probably it was as big as anything that anybody had gotten um, even this day. So they had offered me $25,000 for the first year. And wow, okay, it's a lot more than Sinjin was making, or <laughs> this was a couple years later, so I wasn't even thinking about that. Sinjin was well on his way with the company side out and making his money and doing things and throwing money back into the company and all that. 
But Fila had uh, agreed on a sponsorship with me, and I think it was it went on for five years. My first contract came out, but here was the tipper that I got ten percent of all gross sales. Okay. Wow. So I was guaranteed twenty five thousand dollars, and the first year, Fila sells of my brand, my clothing line, which was the beach volleyball line. They sell. Two and a half million dollars. <laughs> so my base salary is two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that is goes on for the next year. So I'm making ten times after the first year that type of money. Then the following year happens, end of the year half rolls around. It's three and a half million. Uh, so I'm making three fifty. Okay. So then the following year it goes up to four and a half million. I'm making four fifty. Okay. And I think it actually kind of went up to a point that it, I literally was making close to a half a million dollars a year <laughs> for the rest of the contract. And wow. uh, needless to say, I was flying first class because I had to go and have some type of write-off. Yeah. But um, it, needless to say, was the opportunity of a lifetime. But uh, And it was probably the biggest mistake any clothing manufacturer could have ever made by <laughs> giving an athlete 10% of their sales. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Uh is I, I think back on you know, my naivety and I'm just going to go out and get sponsors. And, you know, a lot of beach volleyball is self-funded. And I learned really quickly how challenging it is to get sponsors. And still to this day, young athletes will message me and, and ask about how I got sponsors. And it's like, listen, A, you got to play well, so focus on playing well first. But B, don't just expect that you're going to get a $5,000 sponsorship out of nowhere. Like you, you need to create something. And so I remember the story about feel I didn't remember the 10% piece, but there's, there's something so much more. And, and when you had to pull out the clippings and you had to essentially present yourself, like that's such critical information that many youth right now, just, I'm going to get a sponsor and I'm just going to play and they're going to be on my shorts type of thing versus you actually, you got to go out there and be the publicist. And that's, it's just brilliant stuff. I think for the most part, too, in regards to thinking about um, the sponsorship, I think it's totally different uh, this day and age. And I think that if, if, if I could say this correctly, that you need to go out and create a relationship with that sponsor or with that person. Nobody's just all of a sudden going and saying, hey, yes, hey, Martin, you're a good looking guy. We're going to give you a whole bunch of money. It just doesn't happen like that. It's just you got to put in your dues. You got to, you know, create that relationship. That you've got to create a path for that sponsor to understand what they can get out of it, where you're going to go with it, and I think that is the biggest thing. But now the difficulty is you want to become an athlete, and you need to now get this sponsorship to have your, you know, bills paid so you can travel around the world and play on a tour and be competitive and all the above. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. Neil's say people bring in their, their agents to, to communicate, but even an agent, an agent isn't going to obviously do that unless you're just a hottest commodity because there's something else that you have done. So, if I were to say it to anybody, I think it's all about not only branding yourself, but it's also making that that communication with the person that you want to engage to a personal one. And then you're going to go and get a lot more love and you're going to get some things happening for yourself uh, in regards to the sponsorship. 
I agree so wholeheartedly. And that, that relationship, that commitment to either a brand or a person and, and the communication necessary there, that's something that I learned over time because I, I failed miserably a couple times. I <clears throat> took a few things for granted and, and it back right back up on me. And, you know, the, the relationship is, is crucial. Now, Randy, I'm going to expedite this. Let's, let's move forward because there's a question that I wanted to ask you with regards to, you know, the, the Olympic run, that, that original, original Olympic run. And I, I seem to remember there was either an accident or something happened in the qualification phase. But I, I want to share that because I think it's a special moment, um, not necessarily special coming from the fact that you didn't get to play it, but what happened within the Olympic build up there for you because I, I can't remember if you did play in the Olympics or not, but that was a special takeaway from one of our conversations. Well, you know, that's a funny one because most people think that I've gone to the Olympics. They think that I'm a gold medalist. And when they come up to me and they say, Hey Randy, Oh, he's the gold medalist. And they say that in front of a bunch of people, you can't just tell them, no, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm uh, literally a very lucky uh, volleyball player in the respect that I've had a lot of things come to me without that success. But um, I had three opportunities to go to the Olympic Games. And my first one was when I was 15 years of age, I was playing down at Muscle Beach in Santa Monica, and they have an indoor tryout for the national team. And some guys told me, well, you should go up there. You should go up there. So I go up there, and it's about 20 blocks away. I borrow somebody else's tennis shoes. I don't think I'm even wearing socks. I get into this practice. Okay, what do I do? Where do I go? How do I do? How do I dive? Okay, I'm playing, playing, playing. Next thing you know, it gets all the way down to it. And I'm the last guy not to be accepted on the national team going to the 1976 Olympic Games. And this guy named John Corbelli beat me out for the last spot. I was looking at him like going, okay, they went with him. They went, Randy, Randy, you're going to be good enough. And don't worry about that. You're going to get your chance again in, you know, four years. Well, here comes 1980 rolling around. I had just gotten on the national team in 1979. And we go through the boycott. And so we don't get an opportunity to go to that Olympic Games. Mm. So I stay with the national team. I do a couple tours up in Canada with the Brazilian teams and, uh, you know, fine and great. But then all of a sudden I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head and I'm going, you know what, it's about 1982. And I'm like going, okay, I feel like I need to do something different. And that's where I jumped to the beach and I got basically hooked up with, with Sinchin. And uh, at that time, and then the, su the success came to us, all that. But then we come 1996, and Sinjin and I essentially got the sport of beach volleyball in the Olympic Games. And you're going to ask me how and all the above. Well, we were the number one team in the world. We knew Ruben Acosta. Ruben Acosta was good friends with Antonio Samaranch, which was the president of the IOC. And we basically came to them and said, listen, this is what we're doing. This is how it goes. There's going to be 24 men's teams, 24 women's teams. You're talking about 96 players. Uh, it wasn't that big of a push to go and get that amount of athletes into the games. And then sure enough, it happens. And it happens in 1993. We go down to play in Barcelona uh, as an exhibition sport. It could have been 92 in Barcelona. And the funny thing with the Barcelona thing was 
that Sinjin and I were asked to go down there and Sinjin's going, hey, listen, it's really important, really important that we go down there to get the sport in the Olympic game. So we go down there and I think that there's a, maybe one or two other American teams that kind of go down there, but lesser players. And AVP is all up and running at that time. And and we've been going from for the AVP since 1984. Um, and they fine us $60,000 for going in down there to play that event. No Because way. It, they felt like it took away from us playing in a domestic event. And they had no idea what we were really doing or no idea what how this is all going to turn out. So we come home, and they're holding $60,000 of us from past prize money. And the ironic thing was it was an event in Seal Beach that Karch Kirai and um, Kent Steffes was going to be able to beat the overall win record of, of 13 events in a row, winning 13 Opens in a row. He, they tied Jim Mingus and Greg Lee for that, and they ended up not winning the tournament, ironically. So uh, to make a long story short, with all of that, we got it into, you know, with our lawyers, and we got our money, you know, refunded. But it was the biggest fine in the history of sports at that time. And it was kind of ironic that they were fining us so much that they didn't have any clue of really what, we were trying to accomplish and and where the whole sport was going and again we went to all of the communications all the meetings and the you know to to get the sport in the olympic games and we were successful and ultimately you know that's really where I, when i went and said to myself i can imagine what this sport's going to be like in 20 years what is the sport going to be like in 20 years well 220 some odd countries play the game of beach volleyball. It's a number one sold out sport in the in the in the Olympic Games. It's one of the biggest sports in the world, and there are probably more people that play in the game of volleyball than any sport in the world. And I'll argue that till I'm till I'm dead because everybody thinks it's soccer, but I do truly feel like it is volleyball. And um, you know, to say uh, that's that that was really one of the greatest things. And then. Getting down to the aspect of the qualification for us in going to the 1996 games, it was about four or five months prior to the Olympic Games where we got together. USA Volleyball decided to go and have a qualifier. And the only person that didn't qualify was Sinjin Smith and Carl Hinkle because they slid in through the back door with Ruben Acosta to go and basically uh, be the winner of uh, their the world tour and that they got the automatic bid. And so then there was only going to be two other teams as a host country. We could have gotten three teams in. So Sinjin was in and we had to basically fight for the, those other two positions. So I'm playing with Adam Johnson and Adam and I are basically going through teams like a knife through hot butter. And we were beating teams, if I can recall right, literally 15-0, 15-1. And we get to the finals of the winner's bracket, and I'm playing Mike Dodd and Mike Whitmarsh. And there is about a minute to go, and it's the first time USA has ever created any event like this. They weren't really all that organized. 
They have volleyballs everywhere. There must have been 25 balls out on the court. It was ridiculous. So balls were being served. Just grab one, serve one, grab one, serve one. A ball I'm about to jump serve with a minute to go, and a ball gets served from either one of the Mike Dodd or Mike Whitmarsh. It hits the banner behind me, and it rolls right underneath me, and I land with my right foot square as a square that you could possibly land on a ball, and my ball tries to flex in, my, my ankle tries to flex inward, and it just, you, your, your, your bones and everything can't go that way, and then it hinges back the other way. And I blow out my ankle, and I'm looking at the ball. It looks like a rugby ball. It's like this oblong, okay? And I actually put it off to the side because I wanted to keep it because I knew exactly at the moment what was happening. And I grinned and bared it, and they take me up, and I tried to play. And I just, you know, the shock of something like that. Now, you know, go and play now a high-level game of volleyball. And uh, I lost to Mike Dodd and White, Mike Whitmarsh, and um, you know they were they were kind of smart. They actually, you know, there's the old saying when you're playing two-man volleyball and there's somebody that's hurt. Well, it's not necessarily do you go after that guy that's hurt. Go after his partner because then it is the difficulty of me coming in and trying to set that ball and being off balance and that movement. It does. It, I don't have total control of the game. And they'll say they beat us, and they think they they pretty beat us pretty handily. So they get into the Olympic Games. Mike Dodd, Mike Whitmarsh, the first team to represent the United States, winning the winner's bracket. Then I get a chance the following day against Karch Karai and Ken Steffes. And I'm up all night with this ice boot on my ankle, and I'm, you know, barely sleeping and the thing's all icy cold and it's everything else. And now I basically wake up and now I try to warm this thing up and I'm trying to play and I get it all taped up. And, you know, I was I was a little bit different of an athlete that I could kind of deal with pain and I could deal with a lot of different aspects of being hurt and can and still compete. But it was just way too much to 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 overcome I remember there was a couple open nets that's, that Karch had that he took more than advantage of by him screaming and yelling, by him putting that ball away. But he, again, you never know what's going to happen in the game until the game's over. So uh, mm-hmm. more power to him to, to try to keep the momentum on his side. And we end up losing to him. And um, there is a NBC event. Uh, it was it was taped, and it is in the archives. I think on YouTube, some someplace. I've seen it once. It's not something that I really, you know, go back to trying to want to see um, because of the moment of of what really transpired and what really happened to me. Uh, that was my goal. That was my dream, not only to the go to the Olympic Games, but to become an Olympian. And that was my opportunity. And it got taken away three times. And like I said earlier on in this interview, that I have been blessed in so many ways, but a lot of things have been taken away from me because of whatever reasons. And who knows if that makes me more hungry to go after and do all the things that I still do today, this day. I still want to go to the Olympic Games. I would like to go as a coach. I would like to uh, you know, participate in some way to uh, kind of get that monkey off my back. Mm-hmm. Uh, those opportunities haven't come to me because it just hasn't been the right kind of case scenario. 
think a, a lot of things got to line up and you got to have a lot of belief in whoever you're dealing with and all the above. But I've been getting into the commentating aspect of things. I got a chance to do the Huntington Beach event, FIVB, AVP, online last week. And I hope that I hope some, opened some eyes uh, to the public and to the people that are hiring to uh, give that opportunity because – you know, I have been around, I have seen the game at all different types of levels, and I got a lot to say. And yep. I would like to share that not only with the rest of the people, but, um, you know, I think that when you really get down to it, I've been, I've done, I've run tournaments, I still run tournaments for the youth uh, in the California Beach Volleyball Association. I, you know, not only was a player, but I had coached a lot of people, and you'll say, you know of me, I wasn't your coach, but... I surely was able to coach you, yeah. and I get give give a couple opportunities to go and say a couple things to people. Sometimes that's all what it takes to uh, set them in the right direction and give them the right direction. Um, and I know that, and I got, I have that gift and that ability to do that and to make other players. And that's just what I do around the world. And that opportunity for the Olympic Games, yes, it did slide by, but. Um, and it was a hard one for me, and it was a very, very difficult time in my life at that time because not only did was it something at the end of my career that I thought I was going to top it off with, but um, I had done everything in the sport. I had won every event. I had won anything and everything. I was the MVP. I was the MVP on the on FIVB. I was, you know, I I had done it all. So I had you know, deep in my mind felt like, okay, I'm going to finish things up. But it was truly traumatic after, you know, like I, I just really wanted to get away from volleyball. I really wanted to go, okay, there's got to be something else that I can do in life and that I can aspire to and that I, that I want to. And I tried and I tried and I tried, but you know, there's so many out different outdoor activities that you can do. Um, and essentially, when people see you in a certain light, there's just no way to avoid that. And ultimately, it brought me back some years later to kind of go, um, you know, and want to be a part of the sport again. And I just took it upon myself to say, OK, I'm going to take my and it was good five, good five, seven years that I went through this. And also I went through a divorce at that time. And I don't know if that was a factor of all of everything found myself with two kids, raising two kids, and, uh, you know, uh, just a difficult time in my life. But again, you know, you have to kind of sometimes get to the bottom before you get back up to the top, and that's what I've just been trying to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I I felt the same way. I'm, I'm just coming back to beach now about five, four or five years later, and it's just so rewarding and the, the sport means so much to me as I can see it means so much to you. So, you know, it, in what way are you contributing right now? You, you mentioned that you run some, some, uh, tournaments for youth, but are you, uh, in the sand coaching or impacting some teams or are you down there on the beach? You know, I did that Martin from 2000 to 2013, where I started a company a nonprofit called beach volleyball camps. And we had 17 locations from San Diego to Santa Barbara. And I was doing that every summer for the three and four months of the summer. And I was literally at every beach 
dealing with hundreds of kids every and trying to touch them, you know, trying to make them make a difference for them, trying to be personal with them, trying to, you know, make a difference for them. And I did that for 13 years. And then I found myself just kind of bored with it all. And I literally, you know, and I was dealing with younger, younger players. I wasn't dealing with college players. I wasn't dealing with professionals. And it was something that I kind of wanted to change. And so I say basically came to Cinchin. I said, hey, Cinchineer, you can have this all. And I literally gave him the truck. I gave him all the equipment. I gave him everything. Here, you run with it. You keep on doing this. I know that you can go in and be successful with this. And it's still going on. It's not as, as successful as it once was because you have to put a lot of uh, time, energy, and determination into trying to create something to be bigger. Now the big uh, deal is to go and uh, have these clubs for all the juniors, and they're all part of a club where they can compete with each other and then go and play all the different events. And there's all types of events. So I did that for 13 years. And then ultimately I said to myself, okay, let's see what else I can kind of jump into and do. And so I jumped into doing tournaments for the CBVA. And they're all youth tournaments. I don't do any adults because I just don't want to deal with the, 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 the problems that the adults basically provide. It's so much easier with the, with the kids. That, and also, too, I think that I want to make an impression on those kids. And the funny thing is, is that you know, the sport is so selfish in so many different ways that, you know, there's a lot of people that just don't want to hear it. They want to figure it out for themselves. And I ultimately, I really feel like they have to. You know, it's like I sit down and I have a hundred kids in front of me and I tell them exactly who I am. I'm a little bit different tournament director than everybody else. If you really want to have an answer, come on and ask me this question. I'll be happy to give you any kind of information that you want to go and help you along as being a volleyball player and a beach volleyball player as it. But it's funny, you know, you say that to the youth that are 12, 14, 16, 18, and they're scared in their boots. They don't want to ask you a question. <laughs> they don't. They and, and ultimately, it's kind of just like that, you know, where they have to go through Every moment of winning, losing, figuring it out for themselves, and you try to give them some information, well, they're not going to, it's going to go in one ear, out the other. And then ultimately, you know, again, it's up to them to go and, and try to figure those things out for themselves. So I've been doing the tournaments for probably six, seven years uh, in basically in Pacific Palisades here between Santa Monica in Malibu, and I'm only about five minutes away, but I have kind of like, I deal with about 21 nets. My nets are all perfect. My, I've been so anal with, you know, <laughs> making everything perfect and, and, and on all the above, I put cranks on my poles. So I get the, the tightness of the nets and all the above. So it's, it's, it's been a fun road. It's really great to see. And I must say the kids really, really enjoy it. And again, you know, I'm just waiting for the moment that not only, you know, the, the the sport gets a little bit bigger where the the kids can go and literally come to Southern California and play in all of our events. We have events going on almost every day up and down the California coast. And if you are, you know, wanting to get out of your little neck of the woods, coming to Southern California for a little vacation would be something that I would consider absolutely i'd love that and you know let's let's take that one step further you know randy you have 13 years of coaching kids and 
you know, five, six, seven years now of, of working with tournaments. So you, you're deep into the, the youth culture. What are you sharing with these, with the youth? What are some of your top level, just, you know, on the tip of your tongue, you're sharing to these kids to, to give back to them and to empower them through the sport of beach volleyball? Well, you know, it all goes back to the fundamentals, Martin. And the fundamentals for me are very simple. You know, get the ball in the court. Um, first of all, take a moment and know what you're doing with that serve because that's the first and foremost thing that I tell the kids because ultimately when they're first starting out, all, they're, all they are is listening to a whistle. And then all of a sudden they come to that line and they don't know. They're just trying to serve the ball over the net. And ultimately, you know, that's not what it is. It's actually take that extra moment, know that you have total control of the ball game with that ball in your hand, and what are you going to go and do with that ball? And um, that is basically what it's where it starts. And then ultimately, you know, I see a lot of international teams passing the ball sideways where they open up the court and they set bigger balls one way or the other or that they're going to get a back set. Make the game more fundamental. Make it more simple. Pass the ball in front of you. The blocker is going to be still the blocker. You're not going to go and beat them. And really, by doing all those extra things, you can make a lot of mistakes. But I can see it now because it's a smaller court, and obviously it's a little bit easier to be that athletic to hit a back set, take a ball from the left side, hit it from the right side. Uh, any kind of there's a lot of players that are not very tall that even do it, and they're very very strong with that ability. But ultimately, it all comes down to fundamentals and the simpleness of the game, and you've got to slow everything down sort of speak. You've got to, you know, think about a moment of how you're going to create this chess game. How, what are you going to do to your opponent to put them in a position to do what you think that they're going to do? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's a very fine line in regards to serving. I have my serving areas that I probably won't share with you right now. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. People, people got to come if, visit if you. If somebody's really, truly interested, I can give them the clues of really what it is. I, I have to say I watch online volleyball around the world. Um, it's amazing still how many times a player will just take the ball and go into, because they're a left-sided player, they're going to serve the ball from the left side. Well, whether they're playing defense or offense, obviously as a blocker, the easiest area is to serve a ball that's straight ahead to get to your player as quick as you can as a blocker to be as effective. But now, because of the size of the court, you can spread the, the ball around. But there's key. You don't. Ultimately, it's not about serving just to a player. It's about serving two areas. And ultimately, when a right side player gets the ball to the middle of the court and they receive the ball from the left side, that's a ball that is especially being right-handed that you can't see the court in regards to hitting the ball. And ultimately, you don't know where you're going to shoot it or if even a blocker is because your eyes go to the sand and then follow it to the ball. A left side player can see the whole entire court. So I really don't like to serve the left side player all that much unless you're going to serve them to their line, all the way to their line. Because you, me, and anybody else that's been all the way out to the line, you think about one thing and one thing first. I can hit the ball cross court. Well, that's the only place that's the fat of the court. 
where you're going to go and be successful. And you'll say if you can think about that as a blocker, well, then you try to take away what they want to do and put pressure on them, and then mm -hmm. ultimately they'll they'll make that mistake or or or, or, or shoot a ball over to your partner. <laughs> so we'll let everybody decipher that. I'm sure there's some great nuggets in there. Thanks for sharing yeah. that, Randy. Yeah. And let's do let's do one more here, and then we'll we'll call it a, an incredible episode. Um, you alluded to it a couple different times, and so I was, I've been waiting for this closer. Is when you start thinking. What does that mean for you? Because you, you went out of your way to, to say it. Why is that important for you? What is it about when you start thinking and then all of a sudden things unravel? That philosophy, is, is that a part of your game and a, and a part of what you're sharing? Or does that hold weight for you? Yeah, it does. It certainly does. And I think it's true for anybody uh, that plays the game of volleyball. It's a very interesting thing. You need to ultimately be consistent in your touches that it becomes subconscious. And if you can kind of practice in that way, in a subconscious way, rather than trying to make any kind of communication but already know what your goals are in regards to putting pressure on your opponent, that is it's just a key element of being successful. And ultimately, then you are going to train yourself in those methods. When I was sponsored by Fila, I would put that headband on. When I tightened up that headband and knotted it, that was the moment that I took over subconsciously the game and I would not think. The only thing that I would think about is receiving ball because once I received that ball, then anything and everything that I could do could possibly happen and it came very naturally. But I never ever went and tried to make a drastic move at some stage of the ball game by all of a sudden going, oh my gosh, that came to me. We're going to serve him short. Okay, because it just doesn't work like that. Or, for example, it's point game, and all I have to do is side out one more time. I know I can beat him by hitting that ball inside of the block. Well, right there and then, <laughs> it's going to happen. You're going to try to hit that ball inside the block, but then you're going to get roofed because you just showed it. You showed it on your body, your your chemistry, your your overall thinking goes in that way, and it's it's, it's an amazing. It's a it's a dirty trick. It's a dirty trick because you really want to be, you know, honing your skills way before you get out on the court, and then ultimately. The aspect of not thinking is so, so important. Um, and then ultimately, you can have some thoughts of what you're going to go and do. You can communicate with your partner of how you're going to go about that. But usually it's just like, okay, get it on so-and-so. We're going to serve them over here. It's now even that much more accurate that things are going to happen from where you're going to position them from the get-go. And that all starts with the serve. I love it. It's. I always think back to. Uh, I think it was the, uh, the Tom Cruise movies, um, The Last Samurai, of just no mind, no mind. When they're training out in the field, he's saying, "Your mind this, your mind this, your mind this, no mind." And it's true. The preparation has to show up there without the thought, and you're reacting to that situation. When I'm talking to my athletes, you know, it's about. You're delaying the decision through trusting your preparation. You're not the second you make up your mind that you're going to get hit cross. You're now projecting that, and you're going to get slammed. And and 
they they can read that and and you're giving it away versus how can you re delay your moment until the last possible second where there actually is no decision it's just pure beautiful reaction subconscious reaction well here's one even step further so latter part of my career i was dealing with a massage therapist that basically put me in in the subconscious and would try to you know put me under okay and the first time this guy did this I was kind of peeking out of my little eye, like looking at him. You know, he wants me to have my right hand touch my cheek. And when it touches my cheek, I'm going to be in the deepest of sleeps. And I'm like looking at him like he's going to make me into some donkey. And I'm going to be going hee haw, hee haw. But all of a sudden, you know, he goes and tries it with my left. And all of a sudden, I have my left hand inching up and it's about to touch my cheek. Well, I believed in this man. He was he was a German, and he he had all types of really great things to say and things to do in regards to the body. But I, it, the one thing that I remember going through with him was that he would have me record on a little microphone, Randy, you're the best player in the world. Randy, you're the best player in the world. Randy, you're the best player in the world. Over and over and over and over again. So now there was a time where I got hurt and it was a deep contusion to my thigh. I, I got basically healed in running after a ball and I just had this 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 Charlie horse in my in my in my leg that was just so painful. And he puts me under and he proceeds to work on me and I don't feel a thing. Not a thing. So he pulls me out of it. I come. I learn how to go down those steps and come into the sub subconscious, and I know how to pull myself out of that subconscious. But during that time, he's playing the tape back to me. You're the best with my own with my own voice, Randy. You're the best volleyball player. So as a kid, you come up to those players and you say, and I had it happen to me, and I'm sure it happened to you. Wow, Martin, you're a good volleyball player. Wow, Martin, you're a good volleyball player. God, wow, you play good volleyball. You good, you're a good volleyball. So you hear this over and over and over again at a young age. Well, what do you start to believe? You start to believe that you're a good volleyball player. So this was an easy thing for me to obviously connect to. And obviously it gave me that much more confidence um, of just hearing it in that subconscious. And I'm not saying that just by running a tape to tell you that you're the best in the world, that all of a sudden <laughs> you're going to attain it, but it's going to help. And it truly, it's about self-consciousness and self-awareness mm. and, and being, you know, positive in the, the respect of, of you just being an athlete, I think can be very, very successful for one another. I love it. And you know what? I'm going to end it right there because that's there's so much information within this last hour and a half. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Randy, for, for giving me and, and the audience uh, so much incredible information, some history, some, some deep moments. And I also want to say thank you for giving yourself to Beach Volleyball in the way that you did because you impacted the sport, man in a way that few people have globally. And that's special. That's something that's so incredible. Martin, I really appreciate that comment because it does take a lot of your soul to uh, give to other people. And it's easy to not do that. But I want to also thank you 
for giving me the opportunity to jump into your life at an early age to try to make a difference for you. And whether that stars collided or uh, moments collided, I, I'm, I'm glad that you came to uh, that event as an early young kid and that it created you to play the game of beach volleyball and be successful and not only be successful, become an Olympian and represent your country as you did. Thank you so much. And beach volleyball has impacted me so much and it has given me so much as a human being and trying to find ways to transition the skill set of being a beach volleyball athlete in the real world. It's amazing how much of it transitions and transfers and being a team player, having to, to think for myself out there, and, and I'm sure you can relate to all of these things transition into life. And so I, I believe so much in the vessel of beach volleyball to create better human beings and uh, tap that with just being an incredible sport outside, grounded, bare feet in the sunshine. I mean, it is, it's the best out there. It's the best there is. And as it was for me, and it as is it for you, that success and that you get that opportunity to go and give that to the younger people and the new generations of people that are playing the game that we both love. Congratulations to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Offball Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow the Offball Movement on Instagram at Offball Athlete, as well as myself at Martin J. Reader. Thanks again.